Hey everybody, welcome to episode 16 of the Aquascaping Podcast. I'm your host, JR, and joining us today, as usual, is Sean. You can find us at aquascapingpodcast.com or send in your comments and questions to aquascapingpodcast at gmail.com. Don't forget to subscribe and rate on iTunes, and we're also now broadcasting on Stitcher Radio. Quick shout out to our friend Dan Lulian out in Romania, who sent in some examples of his miniature hardscapes. And these are so fantastic. They look so big, and you would never realize that they're only slightly bigger than a cigarette lighter. This guy has mastered scale. They look amazing. So if you go to aquascapingpodcast.com, check out the show notes for this episode, episode 16. I'm going to have a gallery there with all of them in there. It's worth checking them out. If you have an aquascape you'd like to share with our audience, we'd love to see them. Send them into aquascapingpodcast at gmail.com. All right, last week we went into the basics of CO2, equipment, safety issues. This week we're going into the details, how to use CO2, how to dial it in. Sean did a great job uh, this episode of explaining all of this. I learned a lot. You guys are going to get a lot out of this. Uh, here we go. It is a challenge to dial in CO2, and there's a number of reasons for that. Um, the biggest one is that it's very difficult to measure CO2 in a planet aquarium. We use a lot of indirect measures like a drop checker or pH uh, using the pH-KH chart to estimate how much CO2 we have. And then on top of that, we get a rough estimate of how much CO2 we have, but we don't know how much we need. How much does our tank need? How, many, how much uh, do the plants need? How much are we losing uh, out of the system? And is that being reflected in some of our other measures, like a drop checker? You know, I find myself often wondering if uh, the drop checker is reading falsely high uh, because it's not gassing off of the drop checker at the same rate it is off of the tank. And so let's talk about a number of things that maybe can help us think about CO2 and think about how to dial it in correctly. So the first thing I want you to do is imagine our CO2 levels over the course of a day. And imagine it follows this parabolic curve. And for those of you that don't know or can't picture a parabolic curve, it is the path that a ball takes when you throw it through the air. So it's gonna rise and then it's gonna reach a peak and it's gonna fall at about or exactly the same rate that it rose at. Now, in our tanks, we will probably get some uh, imbalance between the rise and fall of our CO2, but essentially that's, that is this diurnal cycle of CO2 concentration in our tanks when we run it during the light cycle. Now the biggest thing that is going to impact how much CO2 we are getting into our tanks is of course our bubble rate. Now bubble rate, uh, when we try to compare it between tanks, is not a very good estimate if you're saying my tank has three bubbles per second and your tank has two bubbles per second. Uh, we can't exactly say that my tank has more CO2 because there's variation in bubble size and that systems are under different pressures. And so there's a number of different ways that we can measure the amount we are injecting into our tanks. And this one method, which was proposed by Tom Barr uh, at some point, and I haven't seen catch on, um, is essentially using an inverted graduated cylinder that has been filled with water inside our tank. So if you're using a glass diffuser, for example, you take this 100 milliliter graduated cylinder 
and it's full of water upside down and you put it over your diffuser and you allow the CO2 gas to be trapped in the cylinder. As the gas is trapped, it becomes displaced or the water is displaced by the gas and you can get a measurement over a period of time, say one minute or five minutes, and you can see how much inject or how much CO2 is injected over that period of time. It'll give you a better estimate of how much CO2 is going into the system than a bubble per second estimate because we really don't know how much CO2 that is. And once it leaves our, our diffuser and our CO2 system, um, then it's under the same pressure as any other bubbles in any other tank. Uh, so the volume should be very comparable. Now, other things that are going to impact um, how much CO2 is getting in the system, how much is usable, is going to be the method that we use for CO2 diffusion. Uh, glass diffusers uh, are probably some of the more or, or least efficient methods. Uh, I actually like glass diffusers because of that loss of efficiency. Um, I don't think they make your water look like soda water with all the little micro bubbles floating around everywhere that atomizers can do. Atomizers are much more efficient because they create smaller bubbles. Um, and then, of course, there are the various versions of reactors that trap the gas inside a chamber and then completely dissolve the CO2 into the water before it enters the system. Essentially, they're, they're not allowing CO2 to escape. So it is using CO2 the most efficient, uh, efficiently because um, the CO2 is being dissolved before it enters our tank. Uh, people have asked, you know, what's more efficient? Do we want bubbles on our plants? Do we not? Do we want to dissolve it? And I think that right now, as far as my understanding is, that is kind of up for debate. I've seen people um, go back and forth on this, whether misting the plants with CO2 bubbles is really helpful. I've heard uh, the same people say yes, and then later say, no, I'm using reactors now. So um, my take on getting CO2 as far as uh, right, as far as determining what method we use, is just pick your method and then use, uh, excuse me, learn to use it well. So once we have our method chosen, it's not, the problems with CO2 might not necessarily be the method of choice, it's going to be in our use of that method. All right, a side effect of using CO2 in your aquascape is that it's going to lower the pH. The more CO2 that you add into the water, the lower the pH is going to drop. And we can use that pH level coupled with our KH level to determine how much CO2 we have in our aquarium. Some of you out there might be thinking that's an antiquated way of doing it. There's a new technology, drop checkers, they're the way to go. But the thing to remember is that either method is fine and they're both not pinpoint accurate. They're both just an estimation. To get you in the ballpark, we need to take that estimation and couple it with our observation to, to determine how much our particular aquascape needs as far as CO2 levels. So if you decide to use the KHPH method, I'll go through it very quickly here in a very basic way. All you need to do is measure your KH and then measure your pH. You match those two numbers up on a chart and it's going to tell you your approximate CO2 level. I'm going to leave that chart in the show notes so you can download it and print it out if you decide to use it. There are various sources out there on the internet that go into the relationship uh, between pH and KH, so I'm not going to really go into the science here. There's plenty of sources out there if you decide you want to learn more about that. But there's one thing I want to mention about using this method, and I got this from the Barr Report, and this is a quote directly from Tom Barr. Warning, KH may not be entirely carbonate hardness. This means you will think and believe you have more than you actually do. Thus, you may be underdosing CO2. This issue will never be the reverse. So the error is always on the safe side, 
using this method. So that's a good thing to know if you're using this method. When you're looking at that chart, it's never going to overestimate how much CO2 you have, but it may be underestimating. That being said, Tom Barr later goes on to say, quote, if you overdo things at higher PPMs, it only takes a little bit of a change to dramatically increase the CO2. This is one reason why many people fail when adding more CO2 and gas their fish instead. This is also a good reason to buy a nice CO2 regulator, needle valve, etc. So there you have it from Tom Barr, some great advice on CO2. I urge everybody out there to go check out the Barr Report. It's barreport.com. It's B-A-R-R-R-E-P-O-R-T.com. And now let's talk about um, a little bit about getting our bubble rate where we want it and what we should think about as our CO2 concentration travels along that parabolic curve I mentioned. So the bubble rate is going to decide how steep of a climb we have. Uh, is it climbing straight up? And if it does, we're going to reach our peak uh, a lot quicker. And so that might determine how soon you want to start your CO2 or how late in, in uh, coordination with your lights. In most cases, people advocate for turning on your CO2 one hour before the lights go on. It gives enough lead time to reach the concentration that you need by the time the lights do turn on. Now, I think in the beginning, it's very, very important to have the CO2 concentration correct. And I think a lot of times when we struggle with CO2, uh, in certain ways or we see signs of poor growth um, but we feel like our co2 levels are getting really high during the day it might be because we have too fast of a bubble rate or too uh, short of a lead time and because of that um, we may not reach the level that we need so at the beginning of the light cycle um, we're not supplying enough but because it continues to climb at a, at a fast rate, later in the light cycle, we find we have too much CO2. Uh, and so really, I think a lot of times, some struggles in CO2 are more about the timing and getting the right amount at the right time, particularly in the beginning uh, couple hours of the light cycle. The other trick then is uh, if you get the timing right, you have enough at the time the lights come on, is to not to supply too much over uh, the light cycle. So along this curve, think of the light cycle as the peak point. So this is when the ball has reached its its apex of flight. And we want it to stay up there throughout the course of the light cycle. We don't want it to keep going too much higher, but we also don't want, want it to drop too fast so that um, we're not keeping up with the demand of the system. And there can be a number of things that impact uh, whether or not our CO2 will drop during the light cycle, uh, and also how much of a bubble rate do we need to keep up with the, the demand of the system from the plants and also from the degassing. So what things cause a downward pressure on our CO2 levels? And I'm just going to list off a few and uh, briefly describe them for you. Uh, there's surface agitation, and one thing that plays into surface agitation can be the surface area of our water and how clear it is. If you get a bioorganic film, which a lot of us uh, can find on planet tanks, if you don't have any surface skimming, this can inhibit the amount of uh, gas exchange that's occurring at the surface of the water. And if we aren't, we won't be losing much CO2, and so it'll build up a lot faster than a tank with a decent surface ripple that's clear. So if you have that, a lot of people will add skimming. Well, surface skimming increases gas exchange 
increases the amount of CO2 you lose to the environment, and it also oxygenates the water. Now, getting oxygen levels at an appropriate level or high enough is really important because if we start to diminish our oxygen levels to a point where they are no longer um, good, and I guess good would be as high as we can get in our water, um, I think it's around 7, 8 parts per million. Um, don't quote me on that because I don't have a citation in front of me, but um, essentially you want to get as much oxygen as will passively dissolve into the water. In order to do that, um, we want a clear surface. We want uh, a decent surface ripple, and by decent I mean a, a kind of a soft, gentle ripple. We don't want anything breaking the surface or bubbling at the surface because that's going to cause a lot of off-gassing of CO2, and if you're injecting CO2, you don't want to do that. Getting back to mentioning or, or my mention of surface area, just consider the fact that, a, say, for example, a 20-gallon long is going to have much more surface area to the volume of water in the tank than, say, a 20-gallon cube. So that 20-gallon long will have better surface gas exchange than the 20-gallon cube. Um, just something to think about as far as if we uh, want to look at the rate of CO2 that a tank may require. Um, that may be one component of, of the equation. And of course, some of the, the most important component of how much CO2 we need to get into our water is going to be light. And light is the, the throttle of the system. This is going to decide um, how much demand your plants have for CO2. Okay, DIY CO2. Is it worth it? What's the deal? Uh, I'll say this right off the bat. It is a functioning system that generates CO2. And for anyone out there that doesn't know what it is, there's a couple different methods. I use the citric acid method, which very basically is two plastic bottles. One has citric acid and water, the other baking soda and water. They're connected by airline and in a controlled way, create a reaction that generates CO2 that can be used in your aquascape. Mine had a needle valve, which was great because I could turn it off at night and turn it on in the morning to resume the reaction. Now, I think this is really best suited for aquascapes that are small, uh, so maybe a nano-style scape, and also something that doesn't require CO2 to do all right in the first place. So ferns, mosses, uh, easy beginner plants, that kind of a thing that'll do okay without it, but will benefit from the addition of CO2. I won't say that you can't use it in a more higher-tech style tank with plants that need more CO2, require more lighting, and that kind of a thing, but the inconsistencies that come along with DIY are going to cause troubles for you in that kind of a setup. What kind of inconsistencies, you might ask? Well, the needle valve is cheap, so there's fluctuations in bubble rate. You're really going to have to tweak that uh, sometimes, a few times a day. In all fairness, my setup sometimes ran the entire day exactly at what I set it at, but other days it would fluctuate one or two bubbles per second in either direction. The point being, you have to really monitor this at sometimes multiple times during the day. Also, the pressure inside the bottles changed over time. As the batch would wear out, I would notice that the pressure inside the bottles would increase, and to stop that pressure increase, I'd have to turn one of the bottles on its side and let the pressure come back down over the course of a few days and put it back. Point being, again, there's a lot of maintenance and a lot of tweaking and a lot of things that you have to look out for, and you have to really baby a DIY setup. My batches lasted me two weeks, which meant I went through one pound of citric acid a month, 12 pounds per year, so that does add up. So it, although it is cheap in the beginning, you have to realize that the uh, expense on materials over time does add up. 
So what's the verdict? Is it worth it? Well, again, like I said, if you're if you have a low tech tank and you want to add in CO2, I think this is a really great way to do it, especially if you're just learning. But if you want a high tech setup with high lighting, you want a carpet HC, you want plants that demand more CO2 and high lighting, uh, I would say just skip over DIY. It's not going to be worth the headache and all the problems that could come along with it. One last thing I want to mention is that it can be a great teaching tool when used in the right situation. I used DIY for about three months, and I have to say it was a positive experience for me. I learned a lot. I then graduated to a high-pressure system with a regulator, and it was just a world of difference, much easier, and I could achieve a lot more with it. So I haven't looked back since going to high-pressure, but I think in the end, DIY is a good teaching tool when used correctly. been in the hobby for a while and have been reading up on pressurized CO2 or using pressurized CO2, it's not uncommon to come across a horror story about somebody gassing their fish. Uh, And that is because uh, we can put too much CO2 under our water. And CO2 inhibits the fish's ability and our invertebrates and any living creature that uh, respirates oxygen in the water um, to suffocate. Think about this, Uh, when submarines go underwater, um, they're not pumping more oxygen into the air. They have a certain mix that that, uh, is available to the the crew, Um, but what they do have are systems to remove CO2 from the air. And that's because as CO2 builds up, the higher that concentration gets, the less likely or or it starts to um, mess with our body's ability to release CO2 from the lungs and bind oxygen. And so if our CO2 levels get too high, that can affect um, our ability to breathe. And the same thing applies to the fish. If we're getting CO2 levels too high um, so that the fish can no longer release the carbon dioxide from their blood and bind more oxygen, um, they'll start to suffocate. And so that's essentially what happens when we gas our fish with CO2. Uh, One of the initial signs of that, and this is a common sign you can hear people talk about, is when fish go to the surface and they start gasping. It looks like they're gasping for air at the surface. Um, They're trying to get right up there where that gas exchange at the surface is happening and where the higher concentration of oxygen may be and the lowest concentration of CO2 may be. Um, They're trying to survive this high levels of, of CO2 in the water. When this happens, I'd really recommend shutting off the CO2, starting some aeration, and even consider uh, a water change to help relieve that stress on fish. Uh, A couple signs that can happen before they're at the surface for gasping is some fish um, can show color changes uh, when they're under stress. So you can see a dulling of their color. Uh, You can also see uh, behavior changes. Some of the fish may become lethargic or they may hide. And if that's not normal for that fish, uh, you might consider looking at, you know, what, what kind of CO2 levels do you have in your tank and do you need to do something uh, to prevent any losses. All right, we have a question in from Carrie who asks, in part two, please explore the use of pH controllers and CO2 administration and any concerns about the rate of pH drop in the planted tank. I struggle with this balance of getting enough CO2 in my planted discus tank without raising the KH above five. I think I have an algae issue due to insufficient CO2, but I'm afraid of the pH drop from 7.0 to 6.2. Is this a concern? 
All right, thanks, Carrie, for sending that in. That's a great question, and we have a detailed answer for you. Unfortunately, it's too long to play in its entirety on this episode, so I put it on aquascapingpodcast.com slash extras. You can listen to the full answer there. But for the purposes of this episode, I included a snippet that summarizes the answer to part of that question. So the short answer to this question, does the change in pH from CO2 harm my fish or can it harm my fish? The short answer is no. It's not the pH that will cause harm uh, to the fish because the pH is changing due to a change in the amount of acid in the water um, when we inject pressurized CO2. What we aren't doing is changing the fluid balance for the fish by altering uh, the amount of dissolved salts and minerals ions within the water that the fish uses to osmoregulate. All right, so Sean goes into much more detail on the website as well as going into pH controllers and the use of them. Again, go to aquascapingpodcast.com slash extras if you'd like to listen to the full answer in its entirety. If you have a question you'd like to ask us, please send them into aquascapingpodcast at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you. I like to think of uh, shrimp in our aquariums as kind of our canaries in a coal mine sometimes. Um, if you're keeping really sensitive shrimp, um, of course, they're going to be the uh, first victims of too much CO2. Uh, sometimes shrimp like red cherry shrimp seem to be able to um, you know, survive a nuclear blast. Uh, they'll be hanging out with cockroaches uh, if a nuclear apocalypse was ever to occur because uh, I swear they breed like crazy and they're impossible to kill if you wanted to kill them. So, uh, but one thing they do uh, is they'll start to act a little drunk. Hey, Jim, want another beer? Sure, Tom. Well, you're gonna have to buy your own. Well, aren't you a little shellfish? (laughs) (laughs) And so you'll see them, um, they act lethargic. Um, They may stop grazing or feeding. Uh, They may swim all around, uh, look a little dizzy. They may kind of lean over on one side, things like that. Uh, is gonna show that they have some CO2 intoxication. And again, that's a sign that you have too much CO2 or more than uh, your critters can uh, withstand. And so you need to do some type of an intervention to prevent any deaths. Now, one thing that will can impact the amount of CO2 you can safely put into your water is gonna be how much oxygen you have in your water. Oxygen plays a really critical role uh, in our systems. It helps, uh, it helps, of course, our fish and our shrimp breathe. Um, but it also helps feed um, the, the biological processes of our, our biofilters, um, the processing of organic materials. So oxygen is really important. And if you have a canister filter, you probably have a greater demand on oxygen um, than systems that run, say, a sump. If you don't have skimming, um, you're going to have uh, less gas exchange at the surface, so you're going to have a more pressure on oxygen. Um, some things to consider that uh, you might want to look at trying to not just increase uh, CO2, but also increase your oxygen levels. This might help you get uh, over a hump if you see stress from CO2 levels that don't appear like they should be uh, stressful on your livestock. Uh, One thing that you can do is adding nighttime aeration. I think that's a really um, nice solution to trying to add more oxygen to a planet tank. Um, without worrying about impacting your CO2 levels. All right, we made a PDF for you guys that shows three different parabolic curves, one being an insufficient amount of CO2 and what that would look like, the second being a an ideal 
CO2 situation, the one that you're really aiming for, the one that you want for your aquascape, and third shows one that peaks out too high and what that would look like over the course of the day. So it's really helpful if you're a visual person and it kind of ties everything that we talked about today together. So just check it out, aquascapingpodcast.com. Go to this show, episode 16. There's going to be a link for a parabolic curve PDF. Something else about adding CO2 to our tanks that probably doesn't get talked about a lot is that we can actually probably uh, get a buildup over time of our CO2 levels. And so let's say uh, day one, our starting position for uh, CO2 before we start our lights is at um, you know 10 parts per million and we add it up to uh, 30 parts per million CO2. And then overnight, let's say that degasses, but it only degasses um, down to 15 parts per million. And then we add the same amount and now we're at 35 parts per million. And you can see that over time, we're going to see our CO2 levels climb um, because we're not degassing everything overnight. And um, that's another reason why nighttime aeration or some type of surface skimming may be useful um, because it's going to help prevent um, a buildup overnight or, or over time that could cause uh, a risk of, de- or of gassing your fish uh, at the end of the cycle. This is also another reason why water changes are really important as well, especially if you're injecting pressurized CO2. Um, you may be getting a buildup. It's hard to tell without measuring your CO2 over time, and that's something if you're, you're struggling with CO2, getting it right, uh, to measure what happens to your CO2 over time, and not just with a drop checker, but um, do periodic pH checks uh, throughout the day and even throughout the week, and look and see what's happening with your CO2 concentrations uh, over time. It might give you a better idea of what things you might need to do to get enough CO2 or why you might be getting too much CO2. One thing we should mention is that if you're using a pressurized CO2 system is to make sure you're using airline tubing that's designed for pressurized CO2. And the reason is it's built a little stronger. It's going to have a thicker lining so that when you're running higher pressures, it's not going to bubble out or nothing's going to happen to it. But also, CO2 is corrosive. So if you're running it through a regular old airline that's designed for oxygen over time, it's going to degrade and you're going to have a loss in efficiency with your CO2 system. So Jay sent me over some questions he thought might be important for um, beginners or questions that beginners might have when it comes to using CO2. So I'm going to run through a few of these and just uh, give my best answers to those questions. Uh, So the first one is how important is diffuser positioning in our tanks? And positioning is really important. Uh, Mainly we want our diffusers to be in the line of uh, current and flow. We want the flow to push bubbles down so that they stay in the water as long as possible and that those bubbles are as small as possible so they'll dissolve and be distributed um, and the CO2 will be available for plants. Does CO2 cure algae? This is an interesting question because a lot of times you'll see people say uh, if you have a certain type of algae that maybe you have problems with CO2. So does the CO2 cure the algae? Does it kill it? And the answer to that is no. But what stops the CO2 is if you don't have, excuse me, what stops the algae is if you don't have enough CO2, you have poor plant growth. 
And when you have poor plant growth, you get algae growth. And sometimes some types of algae can be indicative of certain problems with CO2. I think I've mentioned in a past episode that in my tank, I do notice that if the timing between uh, my lights and my CO2 gets off because they're on two different timers, I'll start to see the emergence of staghorn algae. This to me is a sign that those timers are off, my CO2 isn't at a level it needs to be, and um, that's why I'm getting that algae. Now when I fix that, um, it's the CO2 is not killing the algae, but it's also giving, uh, not giving it an opportunity to grow because the plants are growing uh, at their optimal rates. How do I balance my lighting and CO2? That's a tough question and that's something I think uh, we have to get some experience using CO2 to learn how we do that um, with each tank. Each tank is going to be different. Each tank is going to have different light levels uh, and different demands, different flow, different current, different plants. Um, but basically, um, when we talk about there being a CO2 imbalance, uh, there are different, um, maybe different injection rates. So if you have DIY CO2, you tend to have a lot of instability because you don't have consistent production over time. Um, DIY CO2, especially the yeast reactors, tends to fall off pretty quickly. And so if you don't change that solution out really every reg very regularly, and I don't like DIY CO2, I don't use it for this reason, um, then you're going to see uh, problems, uh, especially if you're running it on a tank that needs CO2. Um, the best way to, if you're having problems getting enough CO2, is uh, to find that balance is to try to back off the light. And so um, if we're running, running our tanks very fast with a lot of light, um, we're going to need more CO2. And the slower you go, the less likely you are to run out or burn through uh, your CO2. And so lowering the light can reduce a lot of pressure on your system, uh, especially from CO2. Uh, is oxygen important also? Oxygen is very, very, very important. Um, if we have good oxygen levels, in our tanks, we're able to put the maximum out amount of CO2 that is safe into our tanks. Um, so it's good to have probably some nighttime aeration um, or surface skimming or something to help oxygenate the water um, to keep our, our surface uh, clean of that bioorganic film that can prevent uh, gas exchange because with that you'll get a buildup of CO2 over time and you'll have a depletion of oxygen and that's a recipe for some dead fish. Should I increase my CO2 as my plants fill in? Um, sometimes yes, sometimes that's not needed. Um, and again, this is going to be one of those things where you have to use your experience and your observation. So if you're looking at your tank and you're, you're getting a lot, a lot more plant growth, you have a lot more plants in there, and then you suddenly start to see maybe some stunting in the stems, um, there's a couple things that could play into that. Maybe you have enough CO2, but because you have all this extra growth, you're having a reduction in flow. And with that reduction in flow, maybe the plants aren't getting the supply that they need, uh, but you're adding enough. Uh, on the other hand, maybe you do need more CO2, so um, increasing the bubble rate might not be a bad idea. Uh, so again, it's one of those things where CO2 to some extent becomes something you have to learn through experience. And eventually, I promise you'll you'll figure it out. You'll get good at it. Um, you'll know what to do when you see different problems. Uh, but it's not something that uh, I can just tell you how to do, unfortunately. All right, I'm going to wrap up the show here, guys. Thanks again for joining us on the Aquascaping Podcast. Check us out, aquascapingpodcast.com. Send your emails and questions to aquascapingpodcast at gmail.com. 
Subscribe and rate on iTunes, and we're also available now on Stitcher Radio. Have a good week, everybody, and we'll see you next time. This alive.